This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Oh, the sound of school, jungle gyms, recess outside, basketball, playing. The normal sound of fall in many communities across the country. But this year, it sounds a little different. So, and then again, you could um, unmute yourselves. You can add it on the chat. The pandemic Um, has struck some places hard, and many schools didn't return to full-time in-person teaching. So for many... School means opening up a laptop to sign into class. All right. So from what I know, it should be recording now. Um, so the whole goal of today is we're going to be translating into AX plus B equals C form. Okay? We've joined uh, a math class led by Luis Guzman at Cristo Rey High School in San Jose, California. Okay. This fall, the school has been fully remote. But like many teachers, Guzman is making it work despite wonky internet connections or the occasional interruption from one of his sons. AX plus B equals C to solve a word problem, right? So what we want to do... Actually, this is nothing new for Cristo Ray High School. Since the school opened in 2014, teachers have been using a combination of classroom and online learning. It's referred to as blended learning. One of the online tools that Cristo Ray uses is a math program known as Alex. It's backed by artificial intelligence that helps assess students and adapt lessons to students' learning needs. So as incoming freshmen, like they're kind of all over the place. They come from private schools, charter middle schools, public middle schools, and then we try to get them up to speed. And we're able to do that when they log into Alex, they do an initial knowledge check which kind of gives us a ballpoint of where they are with their math skills. Online learning has become a necessity during the pandemic, and that's got schools looking at how technology could be used to help both kids and teachers. An entire classroom can be administered an assessment in a reliable way, and it can all happen within 10 to 15 minutes. But some researchers are concerned that problems with AI could be exacerbated when it comes to education. Just like a human, the AI may or may not learn the right things and take away the right lessons from that data that they're ingesting. From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, artificial intelligence in K-12 classrooms. Goodbye, trusty paper and pencil, three-ring binders and chalkboards. Hello, tablets and software tutors. In just 48 hours, TopTel can provide the world-class AI and tech experts you need to optimize your business and stay competitive in 2024 and beyond. To get started, visit TopTel.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. 
Artificial intelligence is now routine in advertising, the auto industry, medicine, even agriculture. In the last few years, it's slowly been creeping into classrooms. Throw the pandemic into the mix, many schools now using an online-only learning model. More are experimenting with AI tools. Our Future of Everything producer, Casey Georgie, has been looking into this, and she joins us now. Hi, Casey. Hi, Janet. Casey, we heard from math teacher Luis Guzman at Cristo Rey San Jose Jesuit High School. Tell me about the school. What's it like? So it's a Catholic school. There are 480 kids who go there. More than 90% of the students are Latino, and many of them come from first-generation families. You said they've been using this mix of online and in-person learning from the beginning. So why do they do that, and how? What does that look like? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First, the idea of having the technology was to get everyone up to speed. These kids are coming from different backgrounds, different educations. So when they come to Cristo Rey, every kid gets a Chromebook. And they use this technology that helps teachers make the assessments and provide teachers with lessons that can suit a wide range of learning needs. The other reason is that they have something called a work-study program. That's where students work one day a week and they go to school for the other four. The work helps cut the tuition cost in half, but that does mean they're losing out on one entire day of learning. So I talked to the principal, Joe Albers, about this. He said that the AI programs help them streamline teaching and learning. And so we need to be very efficient with our instructional time. Um, it's very challenging for the teacher to develop individual lessons for students. However, utilizing technology, we're able to uh, identify the skill gaps. Because students come from many different schools in a high school area and fill those gaps on an individual basis for the students so that they can really accelerate and prepare for college. The school uses a bunch of different AI software programs. One is for vocabulary, another for writing, and the one for math, Alex, which we talked about before. And Principal Albers said that these are really helpful for teachers. It can make an effective teacher more effective because they're spending their time on things that computers can't teach and utilizing the computer programs to teach the things that uh, teachers don't oftentimes have the time to teach, and that way the teachers can really focus on the higher leverage tasks. So we've heard about the math program Luis Guzman was using in his classroom, Alex. Tell us how that works. Yeah, Alex. So that's spelled A-L-E-K-S. It's actually an acronym that stands for Assessment and Learning in Knowledge Spaces. It's now owned by McGraw-Hill. This is Alex, an artificially intelligent web-based learning and assessment system. The program sends students Alex generic math questions, and then based on how well they did on the assessment, it customizes the lessons for each student, kind of like a personal tutor. I talked to Will Lampros, chief product officer of Alex. Now, the way the artificial intelligence works is through this theory. The theory itself is based upon being able to draw inferences from the fact that the student knows A, B, and C, so does the student know D? If a student hasn't mastered problem A, is it possible for the student to do problem B? If a student has not mastered subtraction, can she learn long division? The answer is no, right? Each question is chosen based upon the answers to all previous questions. Hmm. So how does the algorithm determine when students know enough to go on to that next step? So the algorithm decides students are proficient in a topic when they are able to correctly answer three questions in a row. According to the engineers who run the algorithm, 
This method is correct about 94% of the time. And it helps teachers too. There's part of the AI that uses machine learning to track progress of students and flag those who need help. I'm just thinking uh, the pandemic has affected so many schools. How did it affect Cristo Ray in this program? So have you ever heard of the summer slide? Oh, yes. You go to school and then you learn all this stuff and you're doing really well. And then you have three months of summer where you're not cracking open one book and you have to go back in September and you've lost a lot of ground, right? Right, exactly. This year, there's this thing called the COVID slide, which is a lot like the summer slide, except students this year were losing out on class in March, April, May, and June. Plus, they have the summer months, so when they're coming back this fall, there's huge learning losses here. But the interesting thing is that Principal Joe Albers told me that this technology that they've been using has kept his students on track. Last year, during COVID, we shut down and went to all remote learning. Our students had significant growth between the winter and the spring uh, in math because of the high instruction in Alex. And our students still maintained the, the same growth that other classes had before them. We were still able to accelerate our students and have uh, fantastic growth for their learning. It sounds like this AI is working pretty well for Cristo Ray, but I'm wondering, gosh, they must have faced pushback from parents or teachers for using the AI? Oh, yeah. Alpers told me that parents worried about screen time and students depending on the computer too much for instruction. And he also told me in some cases, parents worried that their kids were getting the same lessons they already learned in their old school. But when they took the assessment in Alex, it showed that they didn't know the math. They were actually failing the assessments and didn't know as much as they thought they did. I hate when the AI is right. <laughs> so uh, Cristo Ray is one school that's using Alex. I'm wondering how popular it is elsewhere and whether this is something most schools can even afford. According to McGraw-Hill, there are almost 3 million students using it globally in grades K through 12. A personal subscription costs about $20 a month, but schools get it cheaper, about $45 per student per year. And the price varies depending on how large the school is or what package they subscribe to. Of course, many schools are on super tight budgets, especially with the pandemic. So an educational product like this one may not be something every school can afford. Okay, math is one thing, but reading is another. And reading isn't so black and white. It's not about right and wrong answers like math is. Yeah, that's right. Reading is fundamental. If you can't read, you can't learn. Kids coming into first grade are coming in at different levels. They have different skill sets. So that means elementary teachers have to figure out where all these kids are at. Yes, and if a child is struggling, it's best to find out the reason early on. Otherwise, your school life will be very difficult. I spoke to Catherine Pace-Miles. She's an early childhood education assistant professor at Brooklyn College, but she used to teach first through fifth graders in Colorado. At one point, she was something called a learning specialist. That's where she helped kids who are struggling the most with reading. Miles would also do screenings with students to figure out what reading level students were at. It was time intensive. You have to realize that you have to call the student over to your desk. You have to sit down. You speak to the child, make sure they're comfortable. You make sure everyone's, your materials are all set. So one minute is, you know, it's more like three minutes. 
And then there's a transition, and that doesn't necessarily include the scoring time. And then imagine it's not just one kid. A teacher has to screen every single kid in class. So I'll never forget, as a, as a teacher, we, had, we would block out a week of instructional time, and we would just do assessments on our students. And so you have to do that three times a year. They're extremely important. They should drive our instruction without a question, but they do take away from our instructional time. And even as a learning specialist, I was the one that should have been giving every minute of my time to these struggling readers. But oftentimes I was tapped to support a classroom teacher to do these assessments. And so that took time away from the neediest students. They wouldn't get my instruction for a week when we had assessment weeks. From being a teacher and doing these screenings, Katie Pace-Miles got really interested in literacy and how to improve the reading process. As a professor, she conducts research on the development of literacy. She's also an academic advisor for Reading Rescue, an early reading intervention program. Currently, she's training her graduate and undergraduate students in this reading software program that uses AI. This one is called Amira. It's now part of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You may know the name and recall it as a publishing company, It now refers to itself as a digital learning company. My name is Amira. Your teacher would like for you to read to me. The AI uses an avatar that instructs students to read aloud while the program listens along. When the tutor is unavailable, they provide the student with Amira to help them with reading practice. This program uses a type of AI known as natural language processing, the kind found in voice-activated assistants, to assess early reading levels and oral fluency. It can also screen for dyslexia. The software also uses machine learning, a branch of AI that uses algorithms, to know when to intervene when a student is struggling. Here is five-year-old Carter Collins working in Amira. The mud. A little. We should review. A little pup runs in the sun. Go on reading. A little pup runs in the sun. Oh, Carter. My goodness, how adorable. (laughs) He's so cute. I'm just wondering, hearing Carter read, though, about different accents and dialects that kids have. I mean, how does the AI sift through that and know when a kid is really struggling with reading and when it's just an accent? That's a very good point. So a lot of AI needs some sort of database of material to learn from. This program was trained in part using a database of recordings made of students reading English from around the world. They were collected by the University of California, Los Angeles, Carnegie Mellon, and West Ed, a nonprofit. So the software was trained using all these different dialects and accents so that it can adapt to the child, especially if they're learning how to read, so the AI can pick up on those differences. Professor Miles at Brooklyn College told me that she's found it to be pretty accurate, maybe even more accurate than some teachers. The biggest problem we have in education around assessments is that When they're delivered by a human, there's always some level or layer of bias. That's why I became so interested in Amira, actually, was when they showed me that the artificial intelligence software could score the oral reading fluency assessment and eliminate any bias around accents and dialects. And it's fast. Long gone are the days when Miles would miss out on weeks of instructional time. An entire classroom can be administered an assessment in a reliable way, and the data can be analyzed instantaneously. 
and it can all happen within 10 to 15 minutes. An entire school could have their beginning of the year benchmark assessments done in a day. Some educators have really had a positive experience with these AI tools. But there are education researchers who have questions about using artificial intelligence in the classroom. We'll talk about that next. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Education has been a slow adopter of AI compared with other industries. And educators point to a few reasons for this reluctance. First and foremost, privacy. These are kids and a lot of information is being collected about them. Some AI education tools were specifically designed to collect student data and track student progress to improve the algorithm. But this idea of tracking student data, even if it's for educational purposes, we are very sensitive to that as a society. Casey, I'm imagining that many people consider this a breach of privacy. Yes, totally. Parents and educators are concerned about where a student's data is going, who has access to it, and how it's being used. I talked to Amelia Vance. She's the Director of Youth and Education Privacy at the Future of Privacy Forum. That's a nonprofit that advocates for privacy leadership and advances data practices. She says federal lawmakers have been thinking about student data privacy since the 1970s. Congress was worried about computers, and they were worried about automated systems making it more difficult to detect mistakes. So in 1974, Congress passed the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, known as FERPA. This law basically says schools have to get written consent from the student's guardian in order to share a student's educational information with anyone. Forty years later, this is still an issue. 2014 became the next big year for student data privacy. Vance says there was a lot of concern over a new set of academic standards called the Common Core. Wait, Casey, I'm not sure I'm understanding this connection between academic standards and data privacy. Can you explain that? Vance told me that the Common Core brought in more computer-based assessments to measure student knowledge to see if they met the standards. But all these computerized assessments made parents uncomfortable. Some parents were bothered by Common Core's precursor, the No Child Left Behind Act. You had a whole lot of privacy issues that were sort of just put on top of that, a level of nervousness. And a lot of parents who hadn't realized that No Child Left Behind had actually had significant data collection requirements, largely for equity reasons, to make sure that, you know, kids were being equally served, that there wasn't, as the data later showed, disproportionate suspensions of minority students, uh, things like that. It really was a lot of fear driving the legislation when combined with current events that just sort of struck a match and uh, really ended up leading to a massive change in laws around student privacy. 
Where and when did we start seeing these changes happen? So California, where Cristo Rey is, passed a law in 2014. And Vance says it was one of the most robust student privacy laws passed in the country. The law really tried to assuage those fears while allowing the benefits of technology. So you saw a ban on targeted advertising, a ban on selling student data. Uh, You had to have a certain level of security. You had to make sure that uh, information was not being shared except as allowed by the school and by federal law. And people are taking it seriously. More than 120 student data privacy laws have passed in more than 40 states. Let's talk a little bit more about the concerns here when it comes to AI and student data privacy, Casey. I mean, we know that our apps are watching our behavior online, like our searches, for example, and our software is learning from us and connecting the dots and then selling us stuff. That kind of data mining, though, how is that happening in education? Yeah, Vance talked to me about this. It's actually not being used in education the way we might think it is. So when we're talking about education data mining, what we're usually talking about isn't, you know, connecting the data between apps about a particular student. It's not, you know, Amelia's data over here and, you know, Amelia's data over here being connected and I'm being, you know, sold a product or targeted with an ad. No, that's illegal. Um, Instead, it is either on the one hand, you know, that information being connected for educational purposes, so to feed into personalized learning, or it is de-identified information about students generally, so information that no longer can be traced back to an individual student that's being used to help that, you know, AI learn through data about specifically how students of a particular class, of a particular race, of a particular age, of a particular socioeconomic status, how students like them are doing using this software. And as I said, again, it, it just like a human, the AI may or may not learn the right things and take away the right lessons from that data that they're ingesting. Vance is pointing here to the assumptions AI may be making about students, their socioeconomic status, their race, and potential bias. It's actually been an issue in a few instances when it came to grading. There have been some cases where an algorithm was grading essays instead of a teacher, or predicting exam scores, and students and parents accused the algorithm of bias, that it was allegedly underestimating the kids and giving them lower grades because of assumptions it made based on their background. So this concern over the reliability of AI to assess students from different backgrounds has been a hot-button issue. So Casey, what does this mean for the future? I mean, what protections are in place now when it comes to AI and education? And um, what are legislators thinking about for the future when it comes to protecting kids? This year, 2020, Vance is predicting we'll see another surge of legal interest in protecting student data privacy. Since so many schools are teaching online, Districts and states are getting together and working on their own data privacy agreements. 
These are a set of guidelines for how service providers can collect, use, and share student data. And she says with regard to the data collected by AI software and education, we may actually have to reassess how we define privacy. Privacy in many ways can be thought of as a bundle of rights that people have, which include transparency about what data is collected about them, can include an ability to challenge decisions that are made about them, and whether the data that is held is accurate, the ability to know when data is being shared and in some cases to have control and be able to limit that data being shared. And so when you talk about the difference between machine learning and, you know, applications that are a little more simple, you're starting to get into these privacy rights. As more and more AI comes into the classroom, we can expect potential changes regarding how we think about that data and how much autonomy students and parents will have over educational data. We have heard about how AI can save time in the classroom and how it can help students. We've also heard about its potential pitfalls like privacy issues. But like in so many other disciplines, Casey, it appears that AI is going to firmly be integrated into our school systems. We don't have any solid numbers on how many K-12 through schools use AI yet, but it looks like we'll be seeing more of it. The global AI education market is expected to increase by 30% over the next 10 years. But that's not going to silence the critics. So my name's Neil Selwyn. I'm a professor at Monash University and I work in the Faculty of Education and also Monash's Data Futures Institute. Last year, he wrote a book, Should Robots Replace Teachers? AI and the Future of Education. So one of my concerns with these, these systems is that they do reduce what learning is and what teaching is to a set of data points, as you say. Teaching and learning is a really, really mysterious thing. No one can actually really pinpoint how learning takes place and, and, and how we can kind of support learning. So what he's saying is that teaching is more than just analytics, right? It's more nuanced. Yeah, that's right. And he went on to tell me that the very thing that separates a human teacher from an AI tutor is the human element. There's this idea of teaching as, as a kind of an art form, um, as an improvised practice. And teachers, human teachers, are very good at kind of improvising, talking out loud, performing with their bodies. These are all ways that some people uh, really kind of get stimulated through learning. And those are skills that AI will never have. That's not what AI does. That's not what big data does. I mean, in speaking about the human element of, of teachers, I mean, I just, I wanted to emulate them. I wanted to look like them. It really is powerful. It really is. I looked up to my teachers, my music teachers, my English teacher. At one point, I wanted to be a teacher. They're kind of like superheroes in some ways. And it would be great if we could find some software that could make school a bit easier for everyone, especially now. That's the goal here. Using this technology, using AI, it's not about replacing teachers. It's about trying to support them and help kids learn along the way. School's tough enough. 
Casey, thank you so much for your reporting on this. Thank you, Janet. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping Carter is our deputy editor of The Future of Everything. Our fact checker is Maddie Bender. Sound design for this episode is by Sarah Gibble-Laska. Special thanks to Cristo Rey San Jose Jesuit High School and to Latasha Collins and her son Carter Collins for reading to us. The pup run to the mud. Our reporter and producer for this episode is Casey Georgie. Kateri Yoakum is the Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening.